I bring you greetings from California. You can be praying for us in these weeks to come. I'm sure that you hear the regular news of what's going on in our state. And we need lots and lots of prayer. Well, I want to direct us today to our passage, which is Psalm 18. And as you turn there, Josh Suiso earlier mentioned spiritual narcissism. And I think one of the temptations when you were asked to speak at uh, Sister Church is to pick very carefully the most profound thing you could possibly say. You're only going to speak to everyone once. And yet as I was praying over what might be the best thing to talk to you about today, I thought, maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you've been weary from this last year. And so the words that I speak today are simple And I hope in the simplicity there's a certain level of profundity as we find what God has to say in Psalm 18. Would you stand as we read God's word and acknowledge that this is his holy, authoritative, inspired word. Verses 1 through 19, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me, and in my distress I called upon the Lord, cried out to my God, he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundation of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens, also came down with darkness under his feet, and he rode upon a cherub and flew, flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place, his canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sweetness of your word. It is like honey. And I thank you for this reminder from Psalm 18 of your deliverance, your delight, 
your strength. And I pray that that would be a comfort to us today. Open our ears, our eyes, our minds to understand what you would tell us through your spirit. Change us, convict us, move us to be different in the days to come than in the days past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but the description of God in verses 7 through 18 is pretty awe-inspiring. The earth is reeling and rocking. The foundations of the mountains are trembling and they're quaking and smoke goes out from the nostrils of God and devouring fire from his mouth. He throws hailstones and coals of fire as he thunders in the heavens and flashes forth lightning. And everything is so earth-shaking that David describes in verse 15 the water being shaken from the ocean such that the channels of the sea can be seen. I was talking with one of our fellow elders, Ray Simmons, who used to serve on the island of Guam several years ago. It's over by the Mariana Trench. Ever seen the Mariana Trench? No, because it's some three miles beneath the surface of the ocean, right? The trench itself also extends further down another four miles at its deepest portion. And so what that means is you could put Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench and the top of the water would still be more than a mile above its peak. And while David is speaking metaphorically here, he is using the most illustrative, powerful images that he can to describe what God does when he comes to rescue his child. And just in case you missed that last sentence, I didn't say that these images describe what God does when he marches in judgment against his enemies. But rather they describe what happens when God comes down to rescue his child. That is the context of this psalm. And all of this, David says in verse 19, is because God delights in me. And I want that to sink in for a moment because God rises from his heavenly throne, casting oceans out of the way, throwing hailstones and lightning bolts, all because he delights in us. Because like a father whose child is in danger, he would do anything necessary to save that child? Yes. And if you're shaking your head at that, having trouble fathoming that that could be a description of God, perhaps it's because you are weary. Perhaps you need some good news from God's word. I think for too many of us, God is the one we invoke in prayer alone. He is words on the pages of scripture or abstract concept. But sometimes he's more, especially when it comes to seeing him as holy and just. We read the Old Testament and and we can accept that God is sovereign and holy. And that that pure, absolute righteousness of God led to the necessity of Christ upon the throne. We, We recite those true facts many times. And it leads us to recognize our own depravity, which is good. It's a necessary step to turning in faith to Jesus rather than trusting in our own works. 
But what often happens next, though, is that we start thinking that God is absolutely angry at us, but that he is absolutely committed to his son. And we say things like, when God looks at us, he sees his son, not us. And then when we read about crucifying the old man and the sin nature, there's a temptation to treat that as if what what that really means is that we are crucifying ourselves and all that is left is Christ. And I was talking about this with my wife the other day and she made a good point from the passage that we read earlier, Romans 8. How the creation groans for deliverance. Not deliverance to be destroyed, but deliverance to be renewed. And verses 20 through 22 of that chapter say this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the creation has been subject to futility and can't wait, figuratively speaking, to be set free from that bondage, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Does it make sense to say that it is waiting to be set free from bondage to be destroyed. And similarly, Paul continues in that chapter, verses 23 and following, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for he... For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so in a parallel way, our new creation is a rebirthing and a renewal through the indwelling spirit that does not destroy us, but rather removes that which is of the flesh, that which was subjected to futility and bondage. Well, what does it have to do with Psalm 18? Simply this. Our tendency to overly focus on the sovereign holiness and wrath of God, which, hear me, is absolutely a part of God's character. And the subsequent tendency to overly focus on God's wrath against our sin, again, a vitally important subject, often makes it difficult for us to grasp and take in the words of Psalm 18. Words which tell us that God moves heaven and earth Because he delights in us. You know he delights in his son. But brothers and sisters, he also delights in you. God loves you and he desires that your joy would be full. That's what Jesus told the disciples on the night of the crucifixion. We read in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. A few years ago, I was leading a study through the book of Zephaniah, and I saw a passage. hadn't really fully registered in previous times reading through the Bible. And it's simple. But again, one of those simple, profound type of things. In Zephaniah 3, 14 through 18, 
You probably know it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. In this passage in Zephaniah is prophetically looking forward to the time when God for his people will take away the judgment against sin. And we know that ultimately happened in Christ. But I hope you heard the last two verses. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And we hear he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I think this passage in Zephaniah, it, it correlates really well with Psalm 18. The mighty one, the Lord our God, saves us. And just as David says in verse 19 that God delights in us, so Zephaniah says that our Lord does these three things, rejoicing, quieting, exulting. God rejoices over us with gladness. And that word rejoice describes what God does. Same word that's used at that initial verse that I read in Zephaniah. When God's people are commanded to rejoice. Well, guess what? Even as you are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, that same word describes what God does over you. He rejoices. He exults over you. The people are said to exult with all their heart. That's the impression that we're getting that God does. With all his heart, he rejoices over you. But you say, how could God love me? After all, Hebrews 4.12 says that God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. Psalm 139.2 says that God knows when I sit down and when I rise up. He discerns my thoughts from afar. In fact, before a word is on my tongue, Psalm 139.4 says that God knows it. Psalm 94.11 knows, says that God knows the thoughts of man. So how could there be any hope for me? Well, friends, the issue is not who you are or what you have done. The issue is God's gracious commitment and determination to love you. Listen to these words from Psalm 103, 8 and following. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. Hear that part. As a father shows compassion to his children. Fathers, I watch you during the morning time and I see you showing compassion to your children. 
Since it mentions fathers, I've been watching Chad with their little one, Kira. And then their older children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Friends, do not abstract your God so much that you cannot fathom the fact that God could have compassion upon you the same way that you as a parent have compassion on your child. And it says, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And when the psalmist uses the word for as a conclusion, it's always meaning that this is a conclusion of what has just been said. It means it's an explanation for why God shows compassion. He knows our frame, that's why. He remembers that we are dust. God does know your heart. He knows your sin. He knows your weakness. He knows your thoughts. He knows your ways. And because he knew that, because he knew that, he knew the only way to lavish upon you his love was to save you from your sin. None of that means that God approves of your sin. And Paul does ask in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Which is a a great question. Since God who knows about our sin chose to love us and save us despite our sin, does that mean that it really doesn't matter in a sense if I keep sinning because it's all been forgiven in Christ? And Paul's answer is that God's love for us in the face of our sin actually motivates us to live for him. He freed us from bondage to sin. He gave us a new heart. He awakened our conscience. He gave us a love for goodness and righteousness. Why then would we want to continue in the cesspool of sin? And that's why it makes sense that as Paul says next, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Of course not. And a few chapters later in Romans 8, we read this from Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that is a famous statement, but it's made even more profound with what we've seen today. If God, who knows our hearts and our thoughts, who because of that knowledge was moved to our rescue out of his steadfast love, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. It's only when you truly comprehend all of it. Yes, the holiness of God. Yes, the depravity of your sin. But also this great steadfast love, this covenantal love, this this family love, this exulting and this rejoicing over you. And what God did in the face of the knowledge of who you are both inside and out, and what he did in Christ, that we can say with Romans 5, how also will he not save us? How also will he not live to intercede and advocate and make sure that what he started in us will be finished and perfected? Isn't it amazing to think that despite who we are, 
in our inmost beings, at least who we are under bondage to sin, that God loves us to that degree that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It helps make sense of a verse like Jeremiah 31, 20, where we hear these these passages in the midst of God's holy wrath and in the midst of his movements to justice. It's almost like these interjections of, but my heart is moved in compassion for you. You see it throughout the prophets. But is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. And we see that tenderness. We see that compassion. And going back to Zephaniah 3, we learn that he also quiets us by his love. All your anxieties over the future, all of your concerns about justice, all of your fears, they are quieted in the face of the love that we read in Romans 8, in Jeremiah 31, in Psalm 18, and all these others. But you know what stopped me when I read Zephaniah 3? It was the final element that God actually exalts over us with loud singing. That's the image I've gone back to a lot of times since then. The picture of God not just mouthing, Words, or even mouthing the words of a worship song like someone who doesn't want to be heard, but exulting with loud singing, it says. Shouting his love over you in song. I think of how you all, it seems to be a pattern here that as, as you end, let's say the Lord's Prayer or something else, you get louder and louder in volume. Is that, a, is that a pattern that you do? Well, just imagine God as he is singing over you, getting louder and louder with each verse. And I think Zephaniah is describing a goosebumps type of singing that happens, for example, in a musical like Les Mis, right? As, as the people are singing the big crowd. Can you hear the people sing? and it just gets louder and louder and louder and the people all join the crowd and pretty soon you're like this, right? Or in the midst of when we get together for those presbytery times and you have 400 men and women and children all singing these fantastic songs of the faith. Those are goosebump types of times. It's a singing that everyone stops and pays attention to. It is a what Hebrew would call a ringing cry. And the one singing is God, God, over you. Martin Luther once said that singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotion that mere speaking cannot. It channels our spiritual energy in a way that nothing else can. And perhaps some of the reason why we struggle with exuberant singing in our own worship is that we struggle with the deeply felt Emotions of joy and gratitude and love or the spiritual energy of commitment and praise that would motivate that kind of singing. Despite the fact that more than 80 times in the Old Testament we are either commanded to sing praises to God or read about someone doing that all to God's delight. So the Lord 
The creator of the universe sings over me. He sings over you. Is it any wonder then that God, who delights in you to that degree, would rise to your defense, would move heaven and earth? And going back to Psalm 18, David says, rightly so, he begins with how he loves the Lord. And calls upon him in his time of need. Psalm 18 is actually included nearly word for word in 2 Samuel 22. It occurs near the end of David's life as David rejoices that God has delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. There were times, there were times as he shares in that chapter where he felt that his life was in danger, imminent danger. But this led him even more to call out to the Lord in his distress and the Lord heard his cry came to his rescue. And so David has that kind of hope, and I, I hope you have that kind of confidence as well. In 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul writes, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles would hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 1.9 he says, Indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver again. On him we have set our hope and he will deliver us again. Do you hear that? God is delivered. He will deliver again. How can we doubt that the one who redeemed and ransomed us from the power of sin will not also deliver us from death and will not also deliver us from our trials? In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in the second letter, we see his own conclusion that the sentence of death, physical death, was upon him. And we look at that, we go, are you depressed, Paul? Are you, are you in anticipation, you know, as you're under house arrest in Rome of going to your execution? Are you anxious? No, he says that the fact that we are still involved in this spiritual war, a war that includes having to die, is meant to make us rely not on ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. And so the same God who rejoices over you, who exultantly sings over you, invites you to trust him. Yes, Psalm 18 is encouragement, but it's also exhortation. And the exhortation is this. Are you failing to proclaim your praise and love for God? Because you are so weighed down by the weariness, so burdened by the challenges and trials, that you've forgotten who your hope is. Hear those words today. He is your vindicator, your advocate. Now, understanding God's love for us is meant to be transformative, as Romans 2.4 reminds us, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. 
And it's transformative of the way that we see and respond to God. And it should be transformative also of the way that we see and respond to God's people. And sadly, I think we struggle with this a bit in the church. We come to church on Sunday and we fail to see God's people as he sees them and delights in them. The way we've been hearing described in these passages. I've always appreciated what C.S. Lewis writes in the book, the screw tape letters. And here's what screw tape the senior demon advises his nephew with regard to this topic. He says, With regard to the church, all your patient sees when he goes inside is the local grocer, grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. And one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You know, one of them may be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew actually afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, If the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and extortioner, then your task is so much easier. And Lewis is there capturing the essence of something that all of us do. We we tend to look to the external. We're distracted by imperfection. We often ridicule the customs of other cultures or mock Believers who don't live up to our idiosyncrasies. What standards are we measuring people by? The world and what it values. But what I think Psalm 18 calls us to is to measure them by what God values. He has taken weak men and women and made them kings and queens. He has taken the dust of the ground and used it to make a creature in his image. And when we devalue and diminish God's special creation by using the false standards of the world, we dishonor God. And the book of James presses that point home in James 3.9 where he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. With it we bless the Lord. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And you can see James's point. Let us not, as we are moved by God's kindness for and delight in us, then turn around and fail to delight in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, this morning we have seen God's commitment to love us, even though we still struggle in sin. We've been exhorted to love others with that same kind of love and impartiality. And I invite you to look at just a few more verses there in Psalm 18, beginning with Psalm 18, verse 20. 
Now I'll read this from the ESV. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the, un- to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Well, it seems a little odd, doesn't it? Given all that we've talked about with regard to God committing to love us despite our sin, perhaps these five verses seem a little out of place. Is David, and here we're talking about the one who committed adultery and murder, actually saying that the Lord has dealt with him according to his righteousness and the cleanness of his hands? Yes and no. I'm sure you love answers like that. Yes, there's a real sense in which David was regarded by the Lord as being righteous. Of course, we know that is only possible through Christ. But still, despite knowing that he was a sinner, David had a clean conscience that he was walking with the Lord and God had forgiven him. It's the same confidence that we have, despite the fact that we too still struggle with sin. On the other hand, in saying no, David isn't saying that the Lord has dealt with him according to his righteousness and cleanness of his hands, because I acknowledge the many times that David confesses sin and is greatly broken over what he has done in other psalms. There's an aspect to Psalm 18, though, one that we see in many of the psalms in which David is speaking beyond himself. In fact, verse 50, the last verse of this psalm reads, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Well, there's only one person that is truly righteous, right? Truly has clean hands, truly has kept the ways of the Lord and is blameless, and that is David's offspring, Jesus Christ. And we often find David speaking beyond himself, and we see Christ in the psalms because of it. So yes, compared to the wicked, David is walking with the Lord, keeping his statutes, he's been forgiven, he loves God's law, but even David in Psalm 14 too writes, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see that if there are any who understand, who seek after God, but they have all turned aside, together have become corrupt, and there is none who does good, not even one. But is it not amazing that the Lord has committed to love you even though you were among those who do not do good? That he does look upon you as righteousness, because, righteous because of what Christ has done on your behalf? As Jesus told the disciples in Luke twelve thirty two, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I, you know, the more you read the Bible... And the more you saturate yourself with the goodness of God, you keep coming to these types of passages where Jesus says, it is God, the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you know from the rest of the scripture all the times that man has just continued to disappoint, turn away from, rebel, exile after exile, judgment after judgment. And yet, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
John at 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Paul in Romans 8, 15 says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. I said at the beginning that Psalm 18 is reminiscent of a father being moved to rescue his child. And that is exactly what does happen in Psalm 18. Because God has adopted you as his child. He has chosen to love you, to give you a heart of faith, to call you to himself, to make you a joint heir with Christ, to give you the kingdom. And the same word that is used to describe the Father's good pleasure in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Greek word eudakeo we hear at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration is the same word that Jesus uses here in Luke 12. God is well pleased in you, His adopted son, His adopted daughter. And so friends, I exhort you to abide in the Lord and in his word, to know yourselves, to know the shallow passions of your heart, to know God as the God who is holy, who is eternal, who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, who created all things and by whose will everything exists. But I also exhort you to recognize that the same holy, eternal, glorious, beautiful, honorable, powerful creator, God is also a father who loves you, delights you, and even sings over you. You might not have had an earthly father who had that type of love, and so perhaps it's hard to understand what that could be, what it means. And I encourage you to read the Bible thoroughly, just just like I was describing a moment ago, to begin to truly be rooted deep in the steadfast love. That phrase occurs so many times in the Psalms, the steadfast love of God. For the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good word to us. I thank you for the kindness that you show us the goodness that you give us, the singing over us, the rejoicing over us, the adopting of us, the granting of us the kingdom. We we are overwhelmed with the thought of your kindness. And I pray that that would move us, even in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our burdens, to remember that as a father would rescue a child, you rise up on behalf of, of your child. We have nothing to fear, but we have everything to hope. Amen. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.